Hi everyone, welcome to the uh, inaugural uh, Centurion Running Podcast. This is uh, an effort on our behalf to try to give you guys a bit more of an insight into what we do and specifically with reference to the One Community event that we have coming up at the end of May. It's a new event for us. Um, We've been going about 10 years. We've organised dozens of 150 mile races in that time. But doing something virtually is obviously unique to the current ongoing situation. It is today, Monday the 11th of May. So here in the UK, we've just heard from Boris Johnson giving us the lowdown on what we can expect to see over coming weeks and months. Most prominently for a lot of us listening in on this, chatting about this, is the fact that exercise restrictions have been lifted. So what's the One Community event about? It's a way for us to offer a focus to and engage our community. So we've set up a race week, an event week, where you could enter any distance between 5k and 100 miles, and you are able to complete that distance over the course of that week in as few or as many runs as you want. So the clock starts ticking at midnight on the Monday and stops uh, just before midnight on Sunday, and you've got that seven-day period to run the distance that you've entered. So... If I take myself for an example, uh, I've got uh, a young family. I've entered the 100 miles, so I'll be trying to complete the 100 miles over the course of the week. My wife, Lisa, she's entered in the marathon, so she'll be trying to run 26.2 miles over the course of that week. And our six- and three-year-old, Louis and Georgia, will be doing the 5K. So the clock starts when you first take a step out onto your first run, and it stops when you uh, finish your final run. Basically, the clock doesn't stop between your first and your last run, whether it's in one go or not. What we are here to do today is give you guys some food for thought and some uh, useful help and advice towards planning your week. We realise that planning to go and run a 5K in one go for an experienced runner is not required. But there are a lot of you who've entered the longer distances. Actually, half of the 1,500 people that have registered so far are in the 100-mile distance. And a lot of you will be taking on 50K, 50-mile or 100-mile week for the first time in a a training uh, format or as a racing format. And we want to cut the learning curve. We want to make sure you guys enjoy it, that you get through it safely, sustainably, and benefit from it in every way possible, from community engagement to enjoying the process and gaining some information to use in the future as well, giving yourself a chance to test out what a, a training week of that kind of level would look like and, and formulate you know, better, more productive training for yourself in the future. I'm here today with the one and only Robbie Britton. I'm going to hand over to Rob in a sec to talk about our coaching philosophy, but uh, Robbie and I have been coaching through Centurion Running and uh, off our own backs um, since, well, we're the best part of a decade into it now. We've worked with literally hundreds of athletes over that time frame. Um, we have a very clear overarching philosophy of what we believe. Our philosophy will, will influence what we're going to impart upon you today. Rob, do you want to take over and um, and talk about what that philosophy is and how it impacts our uh, coaching decision-making? So one of the things that James and I, that's really important about coaches is that we come from a, a 
like an evidence background. And we try and with this plenty of evidence and theory around endurance running, coaching in, in general, and uh, ultra running. And we don't know everything. And that's one of the things I think we'd like to impress is that we don't have all the answers. And this this podcast, we can't tell you exactly what to do. And I would say, be wary of anyone who does have to tell you they have all the answers and does give you exactly what you, you need to do in this kind of circumstance because we're very individual. And that's probably one of the overarching philosophies of our coaching is it's a very individual pro- uh, pro- uh, process. It's about a coach-happy relationship and it's a learning learning process for um, on both ends. So what we want to try and do in this uh, like podcast today is educate you to make the best decisions around your own training, around your own Centurion uh, One Community Challenge, and hopefully, yeah, just a little bit of a little bit of uh, learning, have a bit of a laugh, and uh, yeah, make things a bit clearer on how how we would structure this week if we were working uh, on a one to one basis with you as a coach and athlete. That kind of yeah, James. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I think that's spot on. I think we the best thing about Robbie and I is that we don't always agree and um, <laughs> we engage each other in a uh, it what ends up being a very constructive way. Um, we're constantly willing to learn and adapt, and that's definitely something we'd encourage you to do through this process and ongoing into the future. There's the information and advice is constantly evolving as we get more data, more research, and we try to be tapped into that as much as we can, right, Rob? Yeah, I mean, I can think of plenty of instances where I've, I've even done a complete like 180 degree on what I thought was, was the right thing to do as a coach, and mm. definitely looking back at my earlier coaching and even my own running as an athlete I've, I've made some silly mistakes and i've thought about it i've come away I've, I've spoken to more experienced people and i've learned and i've then repeated those mistakes multiple times until it's finally sunk in um but yeah again we don't have all the answers and finding out what works for you is a process it's not a, a simple kind of like x y and z kind of situation yeah, and it's so true that it's about um, the learning from working with a lot of athletes that forms the philosophy that we have. We've all trained specifically individually for certain things and had success and failure. We know what works for us as runners. Uh, like Rob says, we still make a lot of mistakes, but we do know better <laughs> sometimes. But we can't use that kind of anecdotal evidence all that much when we're coaching and, and advising runners because, as Rob's pointed out, everybody is so different. So what we'll do today is is give you some guidelines, some food for thought. Uh, the best thing we can encourage you to do really is plan your event. Go away and consider what uh, we, we've said today. Uh, make some notes and then sketch out what it might look like for you. But ultimately, always be willing to, to learn and adapt because... As uh, old Lazarus Lake says of, of Barclay uh, Marathon's fame, it ain't going to be how you planned it. Things might change in the week, whether that's work-life balance, the kids, uh, the way the running goes for you, the the climatic conditions we might get during the week. All those things will have to be factored in. So just be willing to adapt as we go. Right, I think we'll get into the nitty-gritty of it. So there's kind of two ways to approach this week, I think, um, Rob. We've got the option of doing it all in one go, which for the shorter distances is obviously probably much more achievable for most on a time basis. And mm-hmm. obviously the option of spreading it out across the week. How do you see the I'll take the whole distance in one go approach uh, for those looking at doing the, the longer distances, 50k through 100 miles? 
we, I mean, we discussed this as coaches at Centurion in our little team, and ideally, we we're seeing this as an opportunity to try something a little bit different, to try out how it, if you haven't done a fifty or hundred mile uh, training week before, it's a, it's a really valuable opportunity to try and build on that. So doing it in one go, I I probably advise my athletes against that. I have got a couple that are doing it in one go. Um, but what in this kind of situation, it's considering what what's what you thought are comfortable with. You have, there aren't any other races kind of too close coming up. So if you do want to do something that could be a little bit more, like doing a hundred mile in one go is going to be quite, it's going to put you out of action for a little bit. There is a bit of flexibility around. It's not like you're going to interrupt your training straight away. So yeah, whilst I've advised against it for most of my athletes, if that's what you really want to do, and I, I get a feeling there are quite a few people that are, that are looking for that kind of side of things, then what we can try and do is, is, is think about those considerations. Think about your route selection, what the web is like, uh, what your access to supplies will be like, what you've done before. And then, yeah, within government guidelines. And I know you're really keyed in onto the, the UK government guidelines, James. Uh, so, it's yeah, hopefully we can give people a bit of an idea about the implications of doing it in one go compared to the, the course of a week. But for me, it's making it as useful for yourselves as possible but also, yeah, what you what you want to do, that kind of enjoyment side of things is, is important as well. Mm, agreed. I think um, the biggest battle with doing something very long, self-supported, is motivation. Uh, in a race format, you've got a situation where that finish line is pulling you in all the way. You've got other runners alongside you. You've got aid stations as bounce points in the race, you know, ways to break it up. Um, physically and especially psychologically and also access to supplies you know you've got things readily available for you at regular intervals in the majority of 50k to 100 mile race distance courses Um, so think about those things how are you going to plan a route where you have access to regular supply will you do something that's looped Uh, either very small loops perhaps almost out the front door um, or will you do something on a you know five five to ten k even ten mile circuit locally where you can come back to a regular point of supply because carrying food water for the distance we're talking about here anything from you know five to thirty hours potentially is a massive task. We're also in a situation here in the UK, and I do realise that there are entrants from across the world, which is wonderful, but we speak to just the UK for now. We, we know that at the end of May, the availability of shops and what have you is still going to be extremely limited. And there's also the impact on um, other trail users, if you do choose to use trail, uh, in other areas. So keeping it local, keeping it simple, will probably relieve a lot of the stress and some of the potential pitfalls you might run into in terms of simply resupplying. I think as well, like uh, so, one of my chaps who's doing uh, doing 101 go. He's been out and he's looked for a couple of 24 hour garages on his route. He went out this last weekend and did a little bit of a longer run to kind of to look at the logistical side of things. And I said to him, like, have a think about when you're going into these shops, right? So if you've planned it and there's, there's a Tesco Express on your little route and you're going to use that. If you're going in at mile 50 or mile 60 and you're sweating, you've kind of got a snotty face, you're, kind of, you're not in your, like, you're, you're in your 100 mile. And we've all, if you've been involved with 100 mile events, you've seen people in all kinds of levels of disrepair. Think about how other people are going to perceive that as well. Because I think we've got responsibility as a community. Like we're a really strong community at Centurion and, and the, putting that out to the wider community because 
don't want to make other people feel uncomfortable. And mm. we've got like a, as runners, we, we're representing a wider group of people. And you know, it's like that, like someone's going to tweet, "Oh God, I saw this uh, sweaty runner. He sneezed in this shop." And then there's a picture on, <laughs> and then suddenly it's gone viral, and runners are all evil. And we don't, we want to avoid that. We want to like create a big like one love community. Yeah, and, and there's uh, also yeah, there's also the impact on the um, on you know if you go running across countryside self-supported and do have a problem, how's that going to impact other people involved? Right, you know there's potential for emergency service involvement. You know if you've got a crew person or a loved one who's out there looking after you, great. But that's also something that takes in a lot of consideration. What sort of loop length would you recommend to runners? Uh, on that last note, I heard this morning that uh, from Chamonix. The, they lifted their kind of regulations to go a bit further um, this morning. Was the, today was the first day and someone couldn't sleep with excitement. So went out in the, in the dark and <laughs> FEMA um, <laughs> had to be rescued. Sorry, I shouldn't be laughing, but seriously. It, I mean, it's, it's almost a bit, it is a bit comical. Unfortunately, the person who's broken leg is, recovers fully. Um, but it's like that kind of level of excitement. Yeah. We had it the same in Italy when we had our first, like last Monday, um, someone had to be rescued with a dislocated shoulder from the mountains on day one. Mm. Um, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's little things. Thinking about like when I go out on the bike, I think about what, what if, yeah. what if this? Yeah. You've got your little spare bit of kit. So for a running, okay, yeah, the size of your loop will then depend, like vary how your what if planning goes. So I'm a, I do, I could run around a 400 meter track all day long, as we know. You, you also, James, can do that. Um, so in terms of keeping your supplies, having a toilet nearby, all this, like the smaller the loop, the easier it is that, that kind of stuff. The harder it is to get lost. Um, but for the mental side of things, I'd probably look at maybe a four or five mile loop um, because that's something you could just tick off one at a time. You're thinking about like the amount of time it takes you to go, to, go around that loop. You can, you can prepare like your food, your drinks for that kind of time length. It's not too bad. You could build it up to like an hour, one hour loop. You might want to do 20 mile loops, but then that means you're one increasing what you've got to take on each loop. And also you're increasing the distance you're coming from your, from your home and it changing that kind of what if situation. So if you have got to get back with a twisted ankle, if you're 20 miles, if you're 10 miles from your, your start point, that's a whole bigger deal than if you're in a five mile loop around your home or you know it never more than two and a half miles from, from mm -hmm. safety. Mm -hmm. I think there's a big factor here about um, being able to relax as well. You want to be able to go and do your distance, your chosen route in a relaxed way. So picking super busy roads where there are stretches without pavements, including a lot of road crossings, including narrow sections of trail at the moment where you're likely to run into groups or dog walkers or other trail users and you know, have that bit of a Mexican standoff that we're all used to going through gates and styles and everything else. You know, those are considerations. Certainly, I, I would try to pick a route that is as relaxing and hassle-free as possible. You've got currently, we'll hope to get this out in the next couple of days, you've got at least 10 days to think about it and maybe even go out and try running your loop once, twice. You know, possibly fine-tune it and tweak it. The other consideration is how much elevation change and what's the ground like <laughs> underfoot of the loop. Yeah, if you're going to... this. This, although we're creating a leaderboard, this is about completion. But whether you're looking to complete or compete, 
the only numbers that count are the miles on the ground and the cumulative time, the total elapsed time. So if you pick a, a very hilly route, you might enjoy it more. Uh, it might break the muscle group use up a little bit more. It might give you a bit more variety, but it's going to slow you down. Uh, similarly, if you pick trails that might cut up quite badly in the wet and it's a wet end to the month, will slow you down. So try and pick something that's pretty good surface year round and majority flat. Rob, what, what would you say are the benefits of picking something that's slightly undulating over just pan flat? So so my wife Natalie is signed up for the 100 mile and uh, we live somewhere where, I mean Natalie has a natural aversion to the flat anyway. But she tried out, she did a three hour run yesterday and I think she covered about 12 miles. Um, <laughs> She's put this on like 20, even at that rate, broken up over the week. There's about 25 hours worth of training to get there. So, I mean, yes, the, the, you've got the benefits of it being much more um, like mentally stimulating, uh, enjoyable. Uh, if it's what you're training for generally, then it's more specific to what you're training for. So say you've got an athlete that wants to test out higher mileage um, for the future, and they're usually doing trail races, hilly races, mountainous races, Trying out like a hundred miles pan flat on a 1k road loop might not tell you much about the peak training weeks you're going to do for the UTMB in the future. Mm -hmm. Whereas if having it more specific for the session, the, the race you're actually going to do more akin to the training you would actually do in the future, it's going to give you much more of a, of a, yeah, a much more of a, a simulation that would be useful. And we react differently to those miles. So again, you might learn something over those. Uh, you're gonna, you might improve your ability to move over rougher ground if you chose 100 miles of rough ground. But you might actually then lose. You're not going to have any time to recover. So if it's the first time you're stepping up to a bigger distance over your week, 50 or 100 miles, making it challenging in other ways too might be an unnecessary additional stressor. So it's kind of thinking, uh, okay, I'm improving the amount of time on feet I have in the week. Do I also need to be improving the amount of vertical I get each week or the amount of rough terrain I cover? It, it's, you don't have to make it any more complicated than it really needs to be, yeah, especially if you're doing advice. it in a one-off. Yeah, that's great advice. We always try to tell athletes, uh, only add, try to have one skill set within a training block. You know, if, you, if you're trying to add ability to navigate, deal with a lot of uh, vertical, you, you're getting into an area where something probably will be substandard, you know, and it might even severely impact your enjoyment and ability to finish. So now you kind of covered off the how to run it in one go side of things because by virtue of doing that, there isn't an awful lot more, you know, food for thought in terms of when you do it you might consider looking at the uh the week and picking a weather window if you are off work and you can be flexible about when to do it certainly obviously with the clock starting when you take your first step and finishing when you take your last step it doesn't matter within that seven day window when you start you don't have to be out there at midnight on the monday so pick a good condition day if you've got uh the opportunity to do that just bear in mind as well, if you are trying to run 50 or 100 miles in one go, you're likely to be out for at least part, if not the whole of a night. How does that impact? You know, have you got appropriate high-vis gear if there's roads? Is there somebody that you can call on, you know, for support if you need it during those hours? Uh, it's it's a very significant undertaking. Um, yeah, I didn't even think of that. I think, like... So some of the ultra-distance cycling I've been doing, you do a lot of stuff at night. And it's not just having that high-vis stuff. If you're going near roads, 
you want um, ideally something like so they say that's more effective if it's like a biomarker. So if if what, what's if what's flashing like a light or what's uh, like reflecting is actually part of movement. So if it's on your wrist or your ankles, it's more likely to attract the attention of a driver. So if you're running on a road at night, just having a high vis jacket and the light on that might not clock as well as having something on your arms, which are, which is moving, which to the to the subconscious brain, this person coming towards you lets you know, lets them know that there's a human there. That it's not just a, a light on the side of the road. So having uh, just be as bright as possible. And if, if there are ways to do it, but I, if I was running in a, like a, a solo challenge at night, I would definitely have a, at least a couple extra flashing lights on me. Little, you can get like little tiny little ones that clip onto your hat or your, your kind of waistband that could be really effective in, in just making sure that you are visible onto your pack. You've got a pack on. I've got these little like LED lights that are the size of a old two, like a two pence piece and they clip on and your couple of those are going to make you visible for miles around rather than having to be a bit more savvy. And again, if you usually run with music and you're coming to road crossings at night, just take that into account. Be a little bit extra careful in a few extra seconds here or there. It's going to make no difference in the, in the, the scheme of things. But running with music on a, on a dark road at a time when people aren't expecting you to be there, especially like the Centurion events, I'm sh- uh, you see all the caution runners. Any time there's a road crossing, it's, it's a high-risk environment for any 100-mile race. I'm assuming, like James, you can probably speak more to that, but you'll have signs up warning the drivers that their runners might be crossing and they won't be there in these situations. So even a simple road crossing become more dangerous if you're running at night and you're kind of you're in a tired of a peak state. Yeah, spot on. I think that's, uh, that's great advice. I hadn't thought about the movement aspect of it. I tend to wear an old nathan high vis vest that i actually wore at um badwater in a long time ago which is entirely on the road but yeah that getting getting hold of a few even small reflective strips is such a worthwhile enterprise yeah so they have proven that the the biomarker side of things is, is, is more effective at being seen on and it's, i guess it's from bicycling um cycling bicycling uh, but uh <laughs> it just it, yeah it's more of a stimulus to the mind of the person it's it's if we we want to try and be as visible as possible at, at night time yeah 100%. so there's probably a few things that cross over here between the i'm going to run my event in one go crowd to the i'm going to spread it out somehow whether that be over two sessions or seven days and many more sessions than that i guess um you know having a taper into race week of some kind mm. is a consideration as is the effort at which you run uh, either your non-stop or week-long event and things like fueling and recovering what have you should we just speak to tapering first rob what what tapering really refers to is easing into an event so backing off um, volume and load uh, so that your body is fully recovered on the start line for whatever it might be. So this will impact those of you who entered in a shorter races that you're going to do one off in a slightly different way to those who are coming into potentially the biggest mileage week of their lives. Um, what would you recommend taper-wise, Rob, as you come into this? We're two weeks out today, obviously, for, for the event. So, I mean, for tapering in generally, my, my philosophy is to reduce volume whilst maintaining frequency and intensity. Um, but this isn't a usual situation. And this is really like Edwina Sutton, one of our other coaches at Centurion, she made a really great point because it was, uh, if people are building up to a 100-mile week, right, for the first time or 50-mile week for the first time, if you're, if you're significantly increasing your volume in a, 
a normal sense, you would you would build that up over over years, over months, right? So, and you would step that up, and that would be your peak week, and then you might taper, like, uh, ease off again afterwards. Um, with this being a kind of a different situation, usually, you might. I'm finding people that are stepping up a lot more quicker than they usually would, and it's for an event. So we've again, I hope this, this is going to come out a bit before. What we've heard some people doing is building up over the two or three weeks beforehand and then having a mini taper Friday, Saturday, Sunday, where you're just resting the body for the, for the challenge that is ahead. If I was looking at someone doing it in one go, I would be having eight to 10 days of taper because you are tapering like a normal event. And what you would do with that is you like have a, 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 a regression. Is that the right word? But like a stepping down in the, in the volume of training. And from a performance point of view, you normally maintain the frequencies. You're going out five times a week. What you do, what I would have someone doing is still going out those five times, maybe adding one extra rest day if, if you felt that would be beneficial, and then maintaining the intensity. So as you fre- come, you become fresher for whilst you taper, actually you feel like you could go faster, but it's maintaining that same level of intensity that your body is used to. So you're not adding the extra kind of muscle stress on there than you need to. You're not trying to go to new speeds. Your body's suddenly recovering from that in the taper. But it's maintaining that sharpness that, that, that uh, to say if you were, it's easier to explain in terms of marathon, but you would keep marathon pace work in your taper in, in reducing that volume of that, of, that vol- of that work, but keeping it in there so that when it came to race day, you were still comfortable running at that marathon pace. You're still keeping your fitness and your training in there, but you're allowing everything to freshen up. So I would, yeah, I would make sure. And the longer you go with ultra running, the more, it, more the important factor is being rested. If you're going out in one go for a 100-miler, I wouldn't worry too much about the, the sharpness side of things. I might chuck in like the week before something around marathon pace, but like even really short, like three or four minutes, just to kind of remind the legs, remind the body that you are fit. And it's good for confidence. You're kind of feeling great. But then just make it focusing on rest. So if you need an extra day or two before and you think actually suffering a bit tired, and that can be from, from work, from life, that doesn't have to just be training stress. An extra couple of days beforehand can really help you be like, fresh for the day. And I think it's Bruce Fordyce, the nine times Comrades winner. Before each of those nine victories, he took three full days off. Right? And that's at the sharp end, running fast. He still took three full days off before each of those 50-mile victories, 56-mile victories. So for me, in this situation, it's different if you're doing it over the course of a week. I would have a mini taper, but try and use the time beforehand to build up and, and prepare the body. If it's doing it in a one or as a kind of maybe over three or four days, um, I would taper in the way you I would for a normal event uh, to start it as fresh as possible. Yeah, that's great. I think as well, we're probably talking to a mixture of people. We've got a lot of you who had planned spring events anyway, uh, particularly mm-hmm. those of you looking at the longer distances have probably been training and putting together uh, a decent amount of aerobic base you know, all the way through 2020 so far. Uh, some of you, though, won't have been able to train much at all during what's been happening the last eight weeks, obviously, with regards to the COVID-19 situation. Perhaps you've got, you know, intense family situation at home, homeschooling kids, trying to work on top. Maybe mileage has suffered. Maybe uh, training load is down. Um, one thing for sure, uh, when you're kind of this close to the event, don't try to to make up for that at this point. You, you're simply not going to build yourself any kind of resilience or physical, psychological benefit now um, that you can use during that week. Just 
uh, as Rob has said, go for frequency over volume. So lots of short, easy runs are far more beneficial than going out once a week for 15 or 20 miles. Uh, so run, run as often as you can. Make sure that you concentrate on those other life factors. So try to eat and sleep well during this time as well. Certainly with a, a taper or even a mini taper, you've got an opportunity to replace glycogen stores. So even if you just eat normally through that time and reduce load a little bit, you'll start fully topped up when you do your either long distance or you know throughout the week. And we'll speak to nutrition and recovery if you've got a big spread of volume across the week rather than doing it in one go in a second. James, what would you say to someone that maybe at the start of it is quite, really quite excited and sign up to the 100 mile yeah. or the 50 mile and is right now thinking, actually, maybe I've bitten up a bit more that I could chew. Is there an opportunity to, to change that around or yeah, like, what question. would you advise in that situation? Yeah, so you can change uh, the distance you've entered at any point up to and during the week. So if you decide, you start off with a 100 mile goal in mind and you decide it's just not going to be possible um, or it's just not safe for you to continue on that path, drop down to the 50. You can just adjust your registration and race director. There's no fee for adjusting down um, and you can change the distance you've entered and recalibrate your goals. Uh, we definitely don't want any of you to be feeling obliged to achieve all or nothing and uh, and leave it all out there this is much more about the, the taking part the community aspect the engagement and, and hopefully a good learning exercise too if you decide that things are going incredibly well and you want to step up then great but we definitely don't want to encourage you to go out on the bank holiday monday and try and hit a massive day to start off with and perhaps rob that leads us on nicely to how we'd propose structuring the week in general if you're going for uh, you know one of the bigger distances and are looking to achieve it as sustainably as possible yeah we definitely discussed this didn't we uh, it's so that bank holiday monday as i know you put it around that week as well with the half term um it's kind of we we, we chatted about whether we would kind of take a benefit out of that take advantage of that or if we would if we would plan a week as a usual 100 miles journey week whereas monday might normally be your your kind of easy day your rest day after a long run the previous sunday um and in this situation we like we both said like saturday sunday uh, you'd probably take it nice and easy have an easier weekend and then on the bank holiday monday to start the event off you might try and uh, put a bit more mileage in just to get and this works from for the 50 and the 100 mile distance for the weeks there's, there's not only is it like in times of logistics and terms you might have time off work, but also psychologically you're putting yourself uh, like you're getting uh, some 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 uh, what's a, is it a cricket term some kind of some runs on the board, um, and then your confidence goes up from when you're when you're when you start it because it's easier to add on to a, to a decent number than to get stuck behind. So this is approaching things slightly different from your normal training week, and more with the centurion challenge in mind uh, and the fact it's a bank holiday. So I. Yeah, I've 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 put here in like our, our mock-up week, which we're going to share afterwards. To start off with, if you're on the 50-mile week, maybe nine or ten miles easy on the Monday. If you're on the on the 100-mile week, maybe 18 to 20, um, which is quite. A, if you're not consistently running those numbers, or like you haven't had experience, I would be very wary of doing it all in one go. Mm. And thankfully, with the current guidelines, you can break that up. I'm a big fan of double days. Um, and even with this kind of challenge, you could do a number running yourself. You might have a family member you can get out with to help them with their with their mileage. You're doing an easier pace. So you could do your own run in the morning and then go out with the, your partner or your children 
to do and add these towards your total. It just makes it a much more uh, beneficial, like much more a much easier task to achieve that bigger total. But also, it does still add value in there because you're going out and it's, you can use a, an easier run or even a, a, a walk as active recovery from the miles you've done earlier in the day. So yeah, I suppose it's that. Doubles versus singles has, has been a big old debate between all of us in the, the coaching group, isn't it, James? Yes, it has. Yeah, and um, what we were obviously until yesterday again focused on the UK, unsure of whether we could even recommend doing doubles. But just to re-emphasise Rob's point, it's a fantastic way of building additional volume in a training week whilst reducing the level of risk to an absolute minimum. Now, just before we crack on, I think it's worth bearing in mind what we are saying counts as part of the volume for this week. So what we've said is you can you happily, as long as with, you go out with an intent to cover some distance, so that could be a walk, it could be um, going out with the kids, uh, if they're doing one of the short distances, as long as it, yeah, so as long as it's a session with intent, then it will count towards your total. So just bear that in mind. The, what we're saying won't count, and try not to count, uh, rather than being too prescriptive about it, is is just having your phone or a Fitbit on, for example, and counting step count during the day. So, as a byproduct of just going about your daily uh, life, you you might cover five, six, seven, up to maybe ten k. That that shouldn't be included. It is, should be about trying to cover distance with a purpose. But as Rob said, absolutely consider doing uh, some walking in the evening, for example as active recovery of your run earlier in the day. I think the spacing thing is crucial here. Uh, one thing we've seen a lot in the past with people increasing volume is when they push mileage into the back end of any day and then try and run again early the following morning, there is an impact from that. There is a reduced recovery time if you don't space um, sessions out or you space them out with, say, much less than 24 hours between them. That being said, if you keep it short and focuses on active recovery, then it, it can be actually beneficial to your run the next day to have gone out that previous evening. Would you agree with that, Rob? Yeah, I mean, any training plan, for me, the important, there's as much importance I place on the, the time between the sessions as the sessions themselves. Yeah. And this can be, whenever you're putting your own training together, like people think as well, they get that idea that, oh, this is what I've got to do this week. There's this run, there's a tempo run, there's a hill session, there's a long run. And then they kind of have a, a bit of a, a hectic start to the week and there's a couple of days off running and then they squeeze everything in as if those sessions have to be done and it doesn't matter that there isn't that recovery between them. Yeah. And that's, like, it's a common mistake we see. And I've definitely done that myself in the past, even recently actually. I missed a session due to um, the emergency of our, our dog and I found myself trying to squeeze those. I didn't want to miss it because it was in my plan. And then I kind of let common sense prevail and I adjusted things around and respected I built the plan back up with that recovery in mind rather than getting the sessions in. Mm. And yes, this is a, a, a different instance than usual with um, that seven-day period we're trying to get all this distance in. But if it comes to Sunday and you're like, you kind of, if this was a normal training week and you were like, oh, I need to get 20 miles in to hit my target and you're not ready for that 20 miles is going to hurt you, then it's, it's all about moving things around and disrespecting your body. So if any of these sessions... And any of the stuff we put together, it's not just do X today. It's do X today and then have the tie between that and do the next session the next day. Well, we and James and I put this plan together for a week. But a lot of it's, it's, it's not, there's not like the usual intensity you have in there in a training week, but it's got the difference between some recovery pace 
Um, and it's just thinking about that. If you need to go out, if you're going out in the evening, and I, I've said to Natalie, that I was for a check with you, James, says, what about dog walking? Is dog walking going to count all right? Yeah, I think so, yeah. If you've gone out with purpose and uh, the purpose is to go for a walk, be it with the dog or otherwise, I think that's absolutely fine. That's definitely part of what we're incorporating here. So, again, if you so say you've got a 100-mile, 50-mile total, but you can do five two-mile dog walks right, or five three-mile dog walks, all of a sudden you've taken that from five three-mile dog walks over the week, which isn't that much hard work. And this may be in, a, in your normal training. That could be, I don't know, five 20 to 30-minute runs. All of a sudden, you brought the total down from 100 to 85 or from 50 to 35. And uh, it's just making it, one, psychologically more um, manageable, and two, a little bit easier on the body to, to build it up. And you might, further down the line, if you were doing more 100-mile weeks, 50-mile weeks in the future, think, actually, I'm going to... I'm going to change that Wednesday evening walk into a Wednesday evening easy run. And you're developing it there, but it's progressing at a, a sustainable rate that's safe for you. Yeah, absolutely spot on. So we just go back to our week here, Rob. We said 18, if we're looking at you guys entered in the 50 mile Monday, 9 to 10 miles, or in the 100 mile, 18 to 20 miles, possibly split into an AM and a PM, and the PM shorter and much more focused on recovery, possibly even a walk. The Tuesday, and these plans are shared and they should be accessible to you. If you can't uh, find them on where you've actually picked this post up, head to the uh, website for One Community and click on the News tab and you'll see these linked in there. They will be shared via email as well to all the entrants prior to uh, starting the week out. But Tuesday, Rob, we've said AM 6 to 8 miles recovery pace and then a PM 3 to 4 miles easy again. So right there, we're on the end of day two. Everything's been super easy so far, potentially split into two, three or four sessions. And you're even still slightly up on your target by this point in a very sustainable way. I was going to say, one of the things you'll notice is there, there's a range and all of the, the distances we put in there, there's a range. And that's because we want you to think about what you're doing each day. And the, the, actually the week as a whole for the, uh, talk about in 100 mile terms it's, it's got a range from 98 to 118 miles um because there may be certain days where you can't do that evening run yeah. or you feel great in the morning and you tag on a couple extra miles and part of that is that we want you to to look at this not just copy it verbatim um but actually to interpret it to think about your own situation and to make to take a bit of ownership over the over the, your plan for the week and realize as james said right at the start of this call that one of the key elements of, of training is adaptability and adapting to the situations that, that arise during your week. Mm. So I think that's one of the things to look at when we say we, we, the reason we're giving a range rather than saying do this on this day and, and, uh, and then giving a, a solid mileage for the evening. So the, the week continues on Wednesday a.m. 10 to 12 easy for the 100 milers, 5 to 6 easy for the 50s, and in the p.m. 3 to 4 miles easy to steady. Um, that's something where you might elevate your heart rate a little bit it, it potentially leaves you feeling fresher, even though it's not a recovery-focused session. It's also good for just pushing you to run with better form. If you end up running very, very easy a lot of the time, it's impactful in a specific way in the same muscle group. Actually, on a whole host of uh, physiological levels, putting a little bit of a higher effort uh, in there without compromising recovery could leave you feeling fresher for later in the week. But as Rob has already said... <laughs> If you're coming into that session and you do feel fatigued and there's any sign that, you know, there's too much uh, soreness, 
then absolutely just back off and turn that into a walk or, or park it until until Thursday. Definitely. There's much a similar theme through Thursday, Friday, Saturday. The key here, you're starting to notice already, is that we haven't said go out and do a huge distance in one go. Uh, certainly, as coaches, for us to prescribe sessions that are over 20, 25 miles in length is extremely rare. Peak weeks for big events, we might stretch athletes towards the five six hour mark but there simply isn't a need to do that here if you're able to remain consistent through the week uh, Sunday's the one day we've said Rob potentially slightly more mileage than that but that depends largely on whether you've got almost a backlog from the week right and that's where this is a slightly unique event and where it comes away perhaps from a training model we would usually recommend yeah and I think as well over the course this week you're going to be learning the whole time so you might be getting to Thursday, Friday, and like the Thursday, if you've been at the higher end of those kind of mileage ranges at the start of the week, and you feel like you need a recovery day, you could do a day off. You could have, like, you could be, and that, to me, as a coach, I would love to see that. If an athlete was like, actually, you know what's best for me and my body is a rest day, or two or three miles is proper easy. Um, that would be a really nice moment, because they're, they're taking like ownership of that decision to, to that they need the rest, but also thinking about it in a way that, They've looked ahead to the Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and they've said, well, I haven't got to do huge mileage those days. And maybe I'll, ah, we've put here like 15 to 20 miles easy on a Saturday morning. The ranges get a bit bigger because towards the end of the week, you might, everyone might be in different positions. And I've put a chance to take some miles out of tomorrow's last long run. Uh, and then you've got the evening run as well. And you might go, I'm going to do a bit more in that evening run on Saturday. So then I haven't got to go huge on the Sunday. And... Uh, same as James, I'm not a massive fan of, of, of big, big mileage. Um, there is a value to it, I suppose, and it depends where you are on your ultra running journey. And that's why I think some people have put 50k in it or 50 mile in a one-off. Could be a really good learning opportunity. But if you are doing it as, as a big one-off, right, and even if within this week you end up doing a big mile, a big mileage day, I would think about how you can add value. To that because it is detrimental that going over hours now is your body it takes its toll on the body as we split it up as you're you're going to you're not as much a single stress on the body if you're doing it in one go think about the value you can add in terms of testing your kit testing your your nutrition and your hydration and other little aspects of that, that you can add in that in the, kind of like the pros and cons column to to long like huge big long runs it's just you can learn from it and if you haven't gone that distance before, you've got a potential to learn so much more than someone, if you're doing this for 10 years, the value of, of me or James going out and doing a 50-mile run, there isn't as much we're going to learn and not much opportunity to learn. Therefore, there's less value to it than, uh, than uh, someone new into the sport. You could learn a whole amount. I remember someone, I mean, you must have done it as well, James, right at the beginning. You just went out and did these stupidly long runs and you tested all kinds of foods and kit and you chafed and you... You ate too many apricots in one go. I mean, that's the kind of thing I was doing. And just, but then I learned from that. So then, when it comes to my racing, I was uh, making different mistakes. Yeah, spot on. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I, yeah, I hark back to some long training runs and uh, a massive regrets afterwards. At the time, it's almost like a validation thing where I felt like I needed to prove to myself I could do it. So therefore, success would be forthcoming in in the event that followed on from that. But in time, you learn that consistency, I think, is 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 so important. Consistency is, is so much more yeah. beneficial to short, medium, and long-term results. And it's 
still important here now, even though we're talking about one kind of defined week uh, where there's a real target. The consistent element of it is 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 the key. Now, I just wanted to speak to effort, really, because I think, unfortunately, it's still far too prevalent uh, amongst running in general that effort is too high to be appropriate for the sessions being run. One thing that's crucial here is that you notice that the only time that Robbie and I have spoken about increasing effort above anything that is either recovery, which we would call zone one, or zone two, easy, or aerobic endurance, is uh, that Wednesday evening possible just sharpening it up to a kind of marathon pace or even a little bit slower than that, a steady effort just to get things turning over. But how do you know if your session or your run is easy enough and one of the core physiological markers we ask runners to use um, to look at is relative perceived exertion, or I like to refer to breathing threshold. That is a point at which you're no longer conversational on your run. Now, obviously, not many of us are running with other people right now, so it's hard to know if we're at breathing threshold or above by having a conversation with ourselves. But you will know because you will start to deep breathe. At that point, something physiologically is happening where the recovery is compromised. So it will take you longer to recover from that session. You may even experience detrimental effects of running to that level within the session that you're doing. Now, that's particularly prevalent if you are going to attempt this in one go. You've got to keep this easy from the start. Um, especially as motivationally it will be challenging later on. So zone two, easy, below breathing threshold, RPE of three or four, so relative perceived exertion, three or four, heart rate in the 70% region. Those are all markers that indicate that you're running at the right level to keep things easy across the rest of the week, which is the level at which we're suggesting you do the majority of the mileage here. Rob, have you got anything to add to that in terms of what athletes can look out for? What I would say, right, and for this week, if you're building up your mileage and this is a big of a step for you or you're doing it all in one go, what's, ask yourself a question, is there any detriment in doing it 5-10% easier? Right? Going out for those easy runs at your usual kind of perceived effort and bringing it back a tiny notch, right? Five or ten percent, you're going to be out for a little bit more time to get that set mileage. But how you feel the next day will be the test. If you're going five or ten percent harder, and it may be, it may be that you're actually then going across these thresholds James is talking about, um, you're, you're stepping into a steady effort or even getting your blood lactate kind of level sneaking up, right? What's that knock on effect? Whereas the knock on effect or the, the positive benefits of going and pulling it back a little bit from where you usually would describe easy. This is a great way to experiment. That's, and that's where I've often in the past seen some of the biggest gains of athletes. It's not by going faster or doing hard sessions harder. It's actually from bringing the easy runs back and actually even bringing their, their threshold running down a little bit as well. Because it's meant that their body is able to recover. The stress is a little bit less and that consistency has been allowed to take hold. So the week becomes a strong, consistent week, which becomes a strong fortnight, a consistent month six months, year, all from just stepping back that easy running a little bit. So however you measure it, ask yourself, what's the, what's the risk in easing it back a tiny bit? Mm. And, that, and I think you'll find yourself saying, actually, I might as well have a cracker, just easing back a little bit. That's brilliant advice. I think that if, if as runners we listen to that piece of advice more than anything else, we would get so much more productivity, longevity, sustainability from our running. 
Uh, you'll notice how through this conversation, Robbie and I haven't mentioned pace to you because pace in the speed on your watch is not a, um, an indicator of performance that you should really be using here. Uh, we use pace really only for higher end sessions uh, where runner is on the road or the track is running in fairly average conditions and with no you know, massive headwind or anything like that. And that's a very rare thing and, and it's highly unlikely to be the circumstances under which you run all of you know this, this one community event. So rather than looking at the pace on your watch, try to refer to your effort level and exactly as Robbie has said, if you're even flirting with the idea that it might be a little bit too hard, just back off. It is such a fundamental skill in ultra running to be able to do that and manage effort equally over the course of a long race, uh, a long training session, or in in really great case in point here, over the course of a week. Uh, yeah, and and if it is an experiment, right, imagine, right, think about what you've got to do during that week to be sat there on Sunday night at the start of your second 100-mile training week, right? That's And that's what I would say, like, it's not just okay, like this is a one-off event and I'm going to bury myself to get there. That's one thing. And that's one way of doing it, which is fine because it is a one-off event and we're not worried about training for a race next week. But it's a really good thing to think about. Is, it, is this going to help me be, to be sat there on Sunday night going, oh, I can't wait to get out of the door tomorrow and start the next week. Yeah. And that is, that's the consistency is the biggest, biggest factor in training. And the, as James said about pace, interesting as well, we wouldn't usually just describe mileage. It would be time. And that's, again, it, it harks back to what we said before about terrain, conditions, and lifestyle. If, you, if your training plan is usually set to time, it takes into account if your first mile is all uphill and a tree's fallen down in the path and you've had a tough day at work and life is heavy on your shoulders, then 10 minutes of easy work is 10 minutes of easy work. Whereas if you're in that situation, not all miles are created equally. What do we think about recovery um, between sessions here? And this this falls as well into the probably the last major topic heading we want to discuss here: fueling during the run, on the run. This also depends heavily on how you structure your week. So recovery between sessions is clearly not something that's going to impact somebody who's doing um, the one community event in one go, no matter the distance. Obviously, they should look to recover appropriately afterwards. But um, in terms of recovery between days and fueling on the run, um, there are a lot of considerations here. And this falls back into the how often can you get access to supplies, um, appropriate uh, food, hydration, um, and making sure you stay on top of both throughout this process. Rob, what do you recommend for recovery between individual sessions for a, for a runner doing 50 to 100 miles in a week and is looking to spread the load pretty consistently across the week? So like, the first thing I'll say is think about it, right? Plan it. Put it in your planning. Again, it's an extremely individualised uh, situation um, and there are loads of different factors that come into diet and nutrition. Uh, I'm currently studying the IOC Sports Nutrition Diploma, but I'm only in the first year. Um, and and it's, it's kind of, it's a huge learning curve. And there's a lot and lot, as one thing that's come across is it's very, very individual. So if you're thinking about recovery between these sessions, if you're doing things in singles, right, so that means that one run a day uses higher mileage. Think about after that session, making sure that there's, you're re restoring your carbohydrate stores, your muscle glycogen. Um, you're getting some protein in for recovery, but that may come as you run in the evening and then you're 
your uh, your meal, your evening meal, is it's got the right amount of carbohydrates, protein, and you might because the, if the, if your weekly mileage has gone up, there might be times in the day where you add in a little bit of extra uh, protein and carbohydrates because you know you're going to be depleting more than usual. Um, you might have something before bed uh, that's just kind of letting that recovery process happen overnight. If you're doing doubles, one of the benefits of doubles is you can like, think about nutrition between those runs. If you're running in the morning, think about what you can do to help recover a little bit before that evening. Um, and it might be that straight away after your your, uh, your morning run, you're getting in, you prepare beforehand. This is another thing. If people are short on time, you can, you can prepare things beforehand or get in snacks. And it, it, there's a whole range of things doing this. I like to, for me personally, like something like a, a glass of milk. It's got a good mix of protein, carbohydrate, amino acids. But also, you, uh, I'll have cheese on toast. There are plenty of options. There's protein bars, protein shakes. I, pre- I prefer real food if I can. And if you're at home, working from home, great. If you're on the go and you know you're running to your office or something at the moment, because um, you're avoiding public transport, which is great, um, having a snack or something prepared rather than getting to the office, getting straight into work or getting home and getting straight into teaching the kids and not having time to eat for three or four hours afterwards, you're taking a little bit away from the, the benefits of those double runs because you can't recover as, or replenish your stores in between them. Yep. So I would look at that week and make a look again, make a little plan. Mm. And there is plenty of resources out there. One of them that I always point to is Rini McGregor's book, Training Food, and there's a running fuel for success one. And you're going to be better off looking into that and trying to make your own plans than, than, than going on the internet and just trying to get the one answer. Right, because there might be different things like that kind of education side of things is going to help you in the long term as well. It's just like we like following up a plan, nutrition plan for a hundred mile week. If that's out there on the internet, might work for someone. Or it might tell you what to do to get you through this week, but it might not help you make the better decisions going forward in the long term. So that's yeah, I think that covers it a little bit. Yeah, that's great. I think yeah, definitely being prepared and having a plan is crucial here. Certainly from my own experience, I know that if I don't feel well during the session when I'm on a bigger mileage week, immediately after and eat well throughout the day and really concentrate on having that plan, I can start the following day depleted and really notice very early on in that following session really that I am I am suffering as a result of nothing more than um, poor planning really. So be aware of those yeah. things as the week goes on for sure. One thing you said in there, James, is, is nutrition during your sessions. And whilst like most of us, uh, especially you see this in old trainers, they're quite happy to go out and train uh, like without any any fuel going in. Whilst that one session, even if you're looking at one of the bigger twelve to fourteen miles easy, you can do that one session. Sure, yeah, without it, without any any food, great. Like you're a hero. But um, is that helping you for the week as a whole? And thinking not about, I can do this one session without that food during, I don't need a, a gel or a little kind of a jam sandwich or a pack of Harry Bowl or something like that. Um, you're looking at the week as a whole. Think of that whole week as a, as, as a race, as an event. You're not eating on Friday's 14-mile run to get through Friday's 14-mile run. You've got the fuel to get through that. You're eating in Friday's 14-mile run so that come by Saturday when you've got 15 miles, you're not starting on empty. And you're, part of that could be refueling between, but you're, it, it's almost, I often use like a car analogy, but you wouldn't run your, your car to empty each time and then fill it up. You're topping up as you go through the week so that you never reach that empty kind of stage, at which point you're, you're in a, a bit more of a bother. This is a great opportunity to test nutrition hydration in 
an event format, which is highly unusual, one where you're probably doing it spread out and and therefore can experiment as you go. Um, use it, you know, use it, build build a knowledge base that you didn't have before because of the circumstances, um, you're going to be in a situation that you maybe haven't been in before. And it's a really great way to experiment for the future. Having a variety as well is is important. So, so I mean, what do you take on, James? If you're doing a, a longer race, what's your fueling like? It's a good question. It, it does depend on the event, but if I've got regular access to supplies or whether I'm carrying um, self-sufficient, it does change slightly based on the amount of weight and the size of what I'm having to carry with me. In this situation, I would be looking either way to keep loops relatively short and try not to carry too much on me. Uh, so I can be a bit more picky and take what I'd really ideally like to have, best case scenario. I'm generally looking to take between 60 and 80 grams of carbs per hour if I can. I'm a 65-ish kilo runner, so not particularly heavy. I'm looking to take roughly a gram per kilo in body weight of carbs uh, for every hour that I'm out. Now, that does sound like a lot, and to a lot of you, if you go away and look at what your carbohydrate intake is per hour during a race or long training run, it, it might well not be you know, around that level. This is an opportunity to try to up it, perhaps not all the way in one go, but definitely look at those numbers and work out how, what sort of grams of carbs you're talking about in each of the products you're taking. For me, what that looks like is a flask of Morton in an hour, that would deliver me almost 80 grams of carbs within that hour all by itself. Um, I've also used gels uh, very heavily in events where I'm more self-sufficient because they're easy to carry. So where I don't have access to loads of fluid or will need to drink a lot of fluid, I tend to take gels more than I would some of the Morton. But I would combine those two kind of sports nutrition products together and then offset that with a little bit of something that's just off flavor. Yeah, we call it um, flavor fatigue where it might be a chunk of cheese, a little chunk of cheese or you know, a little bit of fruit just to offset that whole kind of sports nutrition overload on sugar side of things. Um, but I'm a big believer in that combination of uh, liquid calories, liquid carbs and slightly more solid carbs um, as a good combination. How about you, Rob? What do you, what do you look for, really? Well, the, the thing you said there that stuck out first of all is Look back at what you usually do. That's the first step to improving nutrition. It's not looking, yeah, we can look on our, we can give you advice, but looking at what you do already, right, and especially if you, you feel like you've had success over the longer distances, you feel like it works for you, that, that's more important than anything else. If you find that in, in your races, you're tailing off in the second half, the sickness, the fatigue, and you, you, you aren't putting it down to starting off like a lunatic, um, which most of us do anyway. Uh, the, <laughs> that's generally the first point. But uh, look at what you do and then look at how you can improve it. So we often say, like, I think, that, I mean, so Chattamarini is 1 to 1. 1.2 uh, grams of carbohydrates per kilogram body weight per hour. right? But I often change it back to 0. 0.8 to 1.2 because if you – and it's – Obviously, the numbers, we can write this down on, on the bottom of that uh, training thing. But don't get scared by the numbers. Right? Look at what you usually do. Look at what you take on board. I've got this, uh, like, if someone says a whole different like, range of foods, I can probably tell you how many grams of carbs per 100 grams. Um, but look at what you've got. Figure it out and then start from there. 
the chances are it's probably on the low side. Nearly every ultra runner I've worked with as, an, as a coach and spoke to athlete to athlete, there are a few leaning on the low side. If it works for you, great. If you can improve it 5 10%, then it's going to work better. You can have more energy available to you during the races. It's a perfect opportunity to test it out. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be like gels and sports drinks and stuff like that. Four jelly babies is the equivalent of a normal kind of gel. You've got about 20 grams of carbs in there. The Coca-Cola, per 100 mils of Coke, you get about 11 grams of carbohydrates in. So 200 mils of Coke, that's like having another um, gel. And that, and there's caffeine in there as well, which is a whole different ball game to get involved in, especially if you're running through the night or getting to the latter stages of your race. But there's all different types of food. Uh, there's a really good book called, I think it's Feed Zone Portables, and it has those homemade stuff you can put together. I like these little rice cakes you make. Uh, you can do little kind of like fruit loaves, banana bread, all kinds of stuff. If you're not keen on this, on the sugary, super sport specific stuff, there's plenty of options. Yeah. And, and like, so when James, James, I crewed James with Future 24 Hour Races, and every time he'd come around and want some cheese, because it had zero carbs in, I'd be like, ah, James, you, you're doing my head in. Like, I can't believe you're eating this. It's a waste of time. <laughs> I've come around to the way of thinking that if having this cheese, this tiny carbless block of cheese that James doesn't need, um, helps him eat things further down the line and helps keep that consistent fuel input going in, then I'm happy with it. Mm. I'm happy that he has a little bit of cheddar and maybe a cherry I tomato. Do like which the is cheddar. Good I think the other thing you'll notice with every single thing that we've recommended here is that it's portable and you can take it in small doses. So one thing that you will definitely benefit from um, as a runner, no matter the level at which you're running, is to drip feed the calories in over a a steady period of time. Don't overload on the hour, um, you know, taking all of your, your sort of hours allocation on the hour. The more you can spread it out in general, the lower or the less the peaks and the troughs you'll experience in available energy. So try to eat little and often. It's an old adage, but it's a valuable one for sure. Even even sipping a gel. That's one of the things we've got people to do in the past. Something like an SIS gel is quite like 60 mils of fluid. Taking it all in one go could be quite a shock for the system, but mm. if you find that they're... If you're happy sipping a gel, like it's a fine wine, just like taking a little bit of time, letting your palate like take it through, and then uh, and then having the rest of it. I, I, I mean, I think one of the reasons I've done a right ultra is, is I can stuff my face, um, but have it even just balancing that out. And uh, I remember what was it, the West Highland Way, after six hours of um, sweet potato curried sweet potato balls, which then had an inverse effect on the uh, stomach. Turns out I tested them for four or five hours during the uh, in training and they were fine, right? Five or six hours, the additional spices had an impact. And then I had shot blocks, one every 10 minutes for nine hours because that little and often was enough to take it in. And it's it's getting your mind around it as well. I think the so important here and something that you can really lean on through this one community week is that if something goes off the menu and you're not enjoying it or it's giving you some kind of distress or it's not delivering you regular energy, change it, you know, change it in for something else, experiment, learn from it um, and, and adapt with it. Uh, you might just find you learn things within this week that revolutionize your training and therefore your racing further down the line. 
One thing we ought to mention as well, Rob, is just the um, electrolyte intake and hydration bellies yeah. that we'd put on. Um, you know, for for average average runner, of which there is no such thing. Um, but uh, do you want to speak to you know what do you say to the runner that says, "Oh, how much should I be drinking per hour?" What's your kind of response to that question? So I'll add to the start of this. I'm sponsored by a company called Precision Hydration. They give me the product for free, um, but I will talk about it in more depth. They, one of the things they do is test people's sweat, um, and they test the, the main electrolyte you're going to come up upon issues with is sodium. So they test the amount of sodium you're losing per liter of sweat. And for us, that means then for every litre going in, you want to keep that, that level as balanced as you can, right? Because you're going out either, and it's weird because the symptoms for hyponatremia and hypernatremia either way are very similar. So it's hard to know. And that range you spoke about. So they say like on average we're 1,000 milligrams per litre in our sweat um, of sodium. But you and yourself had a very high number, and I've had athletes who are the other end of the spectrum, really low numbers, and if they go on the, the general consensus, they can, they can come a cropper. So the first thing to do is, again, have a think about your own situation. Um, there are ways you can get tests done. Precision hydration is one of them, but there are several others. But just also looking at like, your own sweat. I, I, I actually I bit the bullet on one of our training camps and licked the arm of a man who I, I, was, I felt had very low concentration sodium in his sweat. I'm really and sorry to hear that. That is awful news. Yeah. No, it, it, it worked. But it, like, even just feeling your own arm and giving your arm a lick, if it's really salty, then the chance are you've got a really high salt con- like sodium concentration in your sweat. Mm. It's a very unscientific way of doing it. But the chap who actually had his arm I licked, he was taking on a lot of fluid and a huge amount of sodium with it because the general consensus that he needed to take on lots of sodium for that. But his, because his sweat where it was really high, he was a very sweaty man, um, <laughs> which made him all, all the nicer to lick. Uh, the, <laughs> the, he was taking on way too much sodium because his body had adapted to losing all this liquid and, and not losing too much sodium mm. because it was all losing liquid. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I do is have a think about what you're taking on board and what you're like. Are your clothes after a long run covered in that salty residue? That's, again, likely to mean that there's a higher concentration of sodium in your, uh, in your sweat. And think about what's going in, because it's not just, so again, sweat rates vary for climatic conditions, genetic conditions, all kinds of things, the, the, the temperature on the day. So if you can balance go, what's, what's uh, going into what's coming out in terms of sweat, and you will struggle to do that, especially on warmer days, your body just can't absorb as much as you sweat out. So we, it is looking at the, you are going to dehydrate a bit at some of these, but it's making that balance of, of the liquid going in and out. And especially if you're changing the amount of liquid going in by introducing a lot of liquid fuels. So your beta fuel, your Morton, um, all these kind of liquid drinks, Tailwind, their sodium levels are okay for the, like in general, but they're not particularly high. Uh, they're definitely below the average. And if you're, if you're actually um, way above that average, I've had, I've had athletes who've got 2,000 milligrams per, per liter, then every litre of fuel you're taking in, in a fluid form, is taking you further out of balance. And it's then, how do I make sure that I'm not... Cause, and it's, we're seeing more and more of it these days because more people are using these liquid fuels and taking on a lot of liquid, and therefore they're getting more out of balance. And same like if you're taking in Coca-Cola, there is, there's very, very little sodium in that. So 
if you're uh, and over the longer courses of the race like day to day recovery between these sessions you're likely going to get enough sodium in your diet it's kind of thinking about it so if you're recovering between sessions you might not have to think too much if it's two short sessions and you drink a little bit of water beforehand and a bit as you get back with a bit of sodium in there and you have a meal that's got salt in there then you're less likely to be depleting anything mm. if you're doing it all in one go and you're saving you just a tiny bit out you're going to be like it's a cumulative effect as that as that longer run goes on and then it's a bigger issue I think some of the the uh, physical manifestations that Robbie's described are a GI distress mainly. You're, th- you're thinking about sloshing stomach, you know, too much fluid in your stomach. The, the liquid's not passing through the gut wall, and the sodium is so important uh, because yeah. of the, the the sodium content in blood plasma. You need wow. blood plasma water content. You need to make sure that that liquid is isotonic, so it can pass through your gut wall. So you need to be taking on fluid clearly but think about the sodium and this is crucial not salt because robbie and i both made this mistake in the past sodium content of salt is about 40 percent so if you're taking on a gram of salt you're only taking on 0.4 of a gram of sodium and it's the sodium number that counts here so just bear that in mind some products some products will have sodium some will have salt so you've got to look at that um, and then make those equations yourself so without being too yeah. loose and saying some some fluid, some salt, um, and you know, less roughly 0.8 to 1.2 grams of carbs per kilogram body weight per hour, there's very little more that we could give you, like data-wise, that won't confuse the situation because everyone yeah. is so different. Robbie's described, he, we have athletes who have got um, a, a sweat rate of 500 milligrams of sodium per liter, I'm almost at 2,000, and I only had that test done six months ago, and I've never, ever thought of myself as a salty sweater, and I'm at the, the, the higher end of the spectrum. So it's such, and, it's, and I'm a quite a lightweight runner, not carrying a lot of body fat, so it's, it's highly individual. Uh, so just experiment, but ensure that if you're taking a lot of fluid that you are taking sodium on board. Is that a fair, rough guide for now, Rob? If you are taking a lot of fluid on board, think about the sodium you might not necessarily need a lot have a think do some investigating okay i've said precision hydration but their website's got some good information on there and they'll link you to actual scientific research you can look into your own levels and see if you might be at either end of the spectrum or if you're in the middle but i would say yeah to take that on yourself to investigate and it could be for a lot of people it makes a massive difference on their races mm. because it's it's a, it's a one thing. And these are all exactly about like everything's harder when you're running harder, right? Everything kind of, you sweat more, you take on more, all these kind of things. So everything could possibly be solved by just going a little bit easier. But this is one of the biggest factors I see that when you go fast in a race um, that, that can cause an issue within, within runners, especially if you're going a long time because any getting it 5%, 10% wrong over a few hours, not a problem. Over 20 hours, you're in the bushes. I've been there, my friend, many, many times. Um, many bushes. Good stuff. Okay. Practical advice, how to submit results. There'll be a 
link on the website with a tutorial on how to submit results. But essentially, if you're not looking to, to be competitive, and by that I mean there will be awards for age groups for different categories, they will require proof. So a simple link to your Strava or an uploaded GPX will be adequate. But otherwise, all you need to do is manually input the time that you started your first run and the time that you finished your last run. So simple and totally on an honor-based system. So um, don't worry too much about the submitting results side of things. Um, I think my, my most important takeaways for you guys anyway to really just have fun with this thing. Use it as a chance to learn. Be willing to adapt during the week. Uh, things won't necessarily go as planned. And as we've mentioned, that might not be running-wise. That might be just work-life-wise. But enjoy it and try to engage with the community. There's Do share stuff on Instagram or Twitter and use the hashtag Centurion Community. Then that will appear on the website. Um, the Instagram feed will appear on the website. And um, and share share your comments. Ask questions. You know, come come through with the with the with the goods for the other runners and they'll come through for you in terms of sharing advice and stories and, and most importantly motivation because this will be as we've discussed probably the biggest training week or uh, similar that you've had in your running life and uh, it's a journey for sure and hopefully a real feeling of achievement at the end of it yeah and as you said there james as well like one of the benefits of being in a big, wonderful community like Centurion is the whole social learning theory is that there is a huge amount of knowledge in that group. Like James and I, we like to think of ourselves as rather knowledgeable chaps. But to your particular experience, there might be someone else in that community. So talk to everyone in there and take it all and with a critical eye or the advice you get. Don't just take anything from, especially the ones that write in capitals, um, as, as kind of as law. <laughs> That's a free one there. If they're writing capitals, they probably need to, to ease down a little bit on the caffeine. Uh, but the like, get involved in the community. There's so many wonderful benefits to the ultra running community. And it's, the Centurion one has got a tight-knit bunch of people that you see each other year-round, and we've been involved for years. But the, it's just a brilliant part of ultra running. And I think that's if you're not involved in the community side of this event or ultra running in general, you're missing a huge part of what makes it wonderful. Um, so I would I would take this opportunity to to share your pictures, but get on board and talk to the other people going through the same journey as you you are at the end of the month and even beforehand building up to it. People have the same worries, the same concerns. You're not alone. Like we all worry about what's going to happen on on little bits and bobs. Or be in there and share it and just uh, like take that opportunity to be part of something that I'm really excited about. If you're involved in ultra running but you're not part of this community, then you're missing a, uh, a huge part of what makes ultra running wonderful. We need we need everybody to pull together even more now than ever, and uh, I think this community has got stronger as a result, ironically, of there being no events like the support for organisers making difficult decisions and hopefully the feeling from organisers back to the runners that they're trying to do the best they can um, on behalf of a you know through a terrible situation, but. Listen, our door is always open. We always say the same thing. We are, first and foremost, fans of the sport. We we want to learn. We want to hear from you. Nothing we love more, as cliche as it may sound, than hearing from runners, um, kind of problem-solving, working through their situation and, and seeing and hearing about them achieving. So if you've got specific questions, fire them at us. We'll happily come through um, and, and answer those. And we really love that engagement part of this. More than anything, good luck. If, good luck. If you are going to write a blog, I would keep it to less than a thousand words, please. That's good advice.
good advice. Loved it. Um, Rob, thanks so much for your time today. You've been uh, you've been a hero. That was that was great, and uh, hopefully it was engaging and interesting for you guys. Much more to follow. I hope. Yeah, we do more of these, James, couldn't we? Just having a natter. We could. Excellent stuff. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, James. And it's always really good to talk about the uh, the, the thought process behind uh, the coaching and the training. And uh, hopefully there's something in there that the athletes we're, we're speaking to now can take away and, and think about. We don't have all the answers. You've got the answers. You've just got with us helping you get there. I think that's a good note to finish on. Good work. Good luck, everybody. And we look forward to hearing more in due course.